VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to Manchester United's draw with Crystal Palace, which stops their winning run as they face Arsenal at the weekend in the Premier League. How big is the rivalry between the Red Devils and the Gunners? We'll also get an update on Manchester United's ownership. We'll discuss the pressure on David Moyes if West Ham's game against Everton this weekend goes badly. And we'll talk about big stories off the pitch. Maternity pay in the women's game. We'll also be talking about racism in the game after John Yems was banned from football until June of 2024 and we'll also be talking about VAR in stadiums and yes you the fans will be able to hear the decisions all that and more on the game Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wisencroft, alongside Molly Hudson, Gregor Robertson and Tom Allnut. Loads to discuss today, some big stories going on off the pitch as well. But we start with events in the Premier League this midweek. Molly Hudson, uh, you were at Selhurst Park for Manchester United's trip uh, to Crystal Palace. They were looking to make it, what, 10 wins on the bounce in all competitions and a fantastic free kick from Michael Elise uh, meant that wasn't to be. I think it was actually... A huge result for Crystal Palace, who haven't been playing that well. I know lots of people looked at it through the lens of of Manchester United and their potential title race, but actually, big big point for Palace. Yeah, I agree with you that I think you know it was a, it was a big result for Palace, and I think it was one of those games where on paper there was only one winner. It was going to be United. They were in such great form. Palace have just looked like devoid of confidence. They've really struggled to create, and actually, that's exactly how the first half panned out. Bruno Fernandes was given a truly ridiculous amount of time and space on the edge of the box for the opening goal just after Palace had actually sort of put a quite nice bit of play together. But then the, the second half was a little bit bizarre because, and Eric Ten Hag said this after the game, he, he had to criticise his own players because it just sort of went into cruise control. Like They had, they had the players on the pitch and he made quite attacking subs, obviously brought on Ganacho, and we've seen the impact he's had on a number of games this season. And they sort of had everyone on the pitch, but it just wasn't quite working. And I think the longer the game went on, the more Palace thought, you know what, we can nick something here. I think the free kick was an incredible goal. Like, if you haven't seen it, go and see it. Sort of 25 yards out. And it was more the angle... It was it was so wide. It was almost on the edge of the box, and then the the way he hit it, so that it hit the underside of the bar, and then went in. You know, it was a it was a really fantastic free kick and a moment worth an equaliser in that game. But without meaning to be too negative for Palace, I think it did sort of sum up 
their problems at the moment that that was what they required to get a point. They are still struggling. Both Edward and Mateta look pretty static up front, which I think is is proven a bit of an issue for for Patrick Vieira. I know he's tried to play without a striker at all at times this season, and it's actually been better sort of with the whole Elise Zaha. As a kind of false nine um, vibes, it's been it's actually been better than it was with with both strikers last night. So I think actually it would be really frustrating for Manchester United that that was a team they should have beaten, and it was almost the perfect time to play them. I think there was a, there was a penalty shout as well for United. Um, Scott McTominay and Chris Richards. It's one of those where I've seen them given certainly, but I think Ten Hag was completely right when he said. Yeah, maybe I don't agree with the decision, but it was on us to create more. We should have been 2-0 up and then it wouldn't have been a problem. We wouldn't have needed to rely on on the referees or on VAR. Firstly, you're right, it was a massive point for Palace. Palace are having a weird old season, aren't they? The kind of team of contradictions. I was reading that they've they've won 13 points now from from uh, losing positions and only Tottenham have, have won more than that. But I think I think that was the first point against a team in the top half of the table. And you look at their attacking lineup and the players they have, you know, Elise, Zaha, Eze, you think this should be a team full of goals and they've only scored 18 goals. And I think, you know, even behind that, ranked 19th in their expected goals as well. So they're a team of kind of contradictions and they can be really exciting to watch, but something's not quite clicking for them this so far this season. So you're right, that was a that was a, an important moment, an important uh, point for them. Manchester United just, they didn't put the game to bed. It's always the, it's always the risk. They... I felt for quite large periods of the game they were in control, really, without being particularly good. And it looked like a performance of a team that are kind of on a path towards being a side that can can get victories when they're not playing that well. You know, it was almost their tenth tenth win in a row, and they came so close to doing so. Even it was just a remarkable strike. And Elise's a player I, I bang on about. I've banged on about since the moment he signed for for Palace. I've watched him play for Reading and. I think he could be anything. He could play. He could be a Manchester United level player if something clicks for him. For him, I think p- personally, and he can reach the reach his close to his best standards more frequently. I think he could be anything. So that was a big moment for him as well. But obviously, a huge, huge blow for for Manchester United. Tom, how big a blow was it for Manchester United? Things are still pretty good there, aren't they? Yeah, I think overall, you know, this has been a, a really positive period for United, obviously, but maybe this result was a little bit of a, a reality check, I guess. I mean, I think everyone got very excited uh, last weekend, you know, suddenly feeling like maybe United could uh, make a late push for the for the title race and, and challenge Arsenal, even if they could get a result this weekend. And maybe this this kind of midweek game just just said that actually this is a team, as, as Gregor says, that's still, you know, on a path, that's still progressing, uh, definitely going in the right direction. But I think they're probably still a step away from from being that team that maybe people were were, were wondering if they could be last weekend. You know that I think you know it almost reminds me a little bit of what Arsenal were last season under Arteta. You know, you, you can see a plan, you can see an identity, you can see what they're trying to do, but ultimately, you know these these identity coaches. You know, it takes time. You know, you can see the plan, but sometimes there needs to be another step before that execution is there. You know, where, where there's that clinical edge. And you put these kind of games to bed. I still think United's weaknesses that have um, caused them problems uh, in the last few months are still there. You know, I still think they lack a little bit of um, edge and clinic, being clinical in the final third. 
Um, and ultimately, you know, it's that whole cliche. If it's if it's one nil, then you're always you're always vulnerable to a moment. You're always vulnerable to a, to a moment of bad luck or a moment of brilliance, and that's what happened in this game. So, you know, listen, I, I fully expect United to to continue on their current trajectory for the rest of this season. Um, it looks like they might be that team that's kind of in between the sort of tussle for the top four and the title race, which we often see. There is kind of often a team in third who is sort of in between the two. But if you ask me now, are they going to be closer to the, to the sort of fourth position than first? I would say yes. You know, I still think they've got a way to go before they can be back a lot among the kind of real serious Premier League title challenges. There's a huge game coming up next, though, for Manchester United against a credible title challenger in the shape of Arsenal. Um, and this is, you know, historically, and you can read in the Times about the rivalry between these two clubs right now. Uh, it is historically something that has been very special, particularly in the Premier League years. And, you know, for fans of these clubs, maybe they want it to be special. I don't know. Um, something about this fixture this weekend, particularly after Manchester United's victory over Manchester City, uh, makes it maybe a bigger contest because it, it could well play a big part in terms of the final outcome of the Premier League title. But also, particularly after the draw, I think Manchester United fans are now desperate to show that the victory over Manchester City and all the headlines about them being back, you know, the Palace draw has slightly taken the wind out of those sails a little bit. And obviously, victory over Arsenal and the two teams ahead of them in the Premier League table in back-to-back weekends would still underline that Manchester United are heading right back where they would want to be as a football club, and that is to the top. How big is this fixture this weekend, Gregor? It's massive, yeah. I mean, you're right, the the, the Olisi goal, that one moment, it has kind of taken the wind out of United Sales a little bit in terms of narrowing the gap to a, to a, a point where you're thinking maybe, just maybe. It's still quite... It's still quite a gap at nine points just now. So I just we just have to keep coming back to Casemiro being missing and how, how important that is. I've seen people saying today that they, they beat Arsenal without Casemiro earlier in the season, but it was a different Arsenal side as well. And I think look, he's not the he's not there are many there's many players who've improved who've improved United since then. And but Casemiro is the number one among them and his kind of presence and being able to close the spaces where someone like Odegaard has been so lethal in, in, in recent weeks is going to be so important. So that that's a massive blow. But look, if if, if United win this game, then still the, the kind of the dream is alive. Absolutely. It's not only would it be be a big blow to, to Arsenal, but it would narrow the narrow the gap further and it would would make it look for the time being at least like we might have a title race in our hands. I think it was quite interesting last night after the game. Um a journalist asked Patrick Vieira kind of what he thought about this game. And anyone that has sort of vaguely covered Vieira's managerial career will tell you that he really hates talking about his playing career. Um, and he, he sort of initially avoided it and then kind of gave everyone the sound bite that they wanted, which was which was kind of saying that he believes the quality of the players, both United and Arsenal, can be genuine title contenders. But I think that the kind of reason for the question, I guess, was that it's probably been sort of since Vieira's era when we look back at, at, at those pieces. And I know some of my colleagues have, have, have written that piece for, for online today, um, which people can go and check out. But it's probably been since that era where it has been a proper rivalry. And, and I think we were discussing this about Liverpool Man City on the podcast the other day. But to get a good rivalry, you need the teams to be 
legitimately good again. And it's probably been a while since we've had United and Arsenal in this position in the table going into one of these games. And I think I think that only adds to the rivalry. And I think it makes it a lot more exciting for the fans. But I also think it, it makes it a bit more exciting for the neutrals because... Let's be honest, when, when these two teams have probably been fighting out for kind of Europa League, maybe the last Champions League spot, it's it's not as exciting as a as a United Arsenal game with genuine, you know, implications on who's gonna go and win the title because I think, you know, not only how it's gonna derail United, but how much confidence Arsenal will take probably playing a United team in this moment if they can go and beat them. I think, you know, you have to look at Arsenal now as, as kind of that one that's probably the favourite. Tom, how does Manchester United versus Arsenal shape up as a rivalry at the moment? I mean, as a Manchester United fan, I've got to say, I, I really couldn't care less what happens to Arsenal. You know, they, they are one of the many teams that have ridden the coattails of Manchester United throughout the Premier League era, you know, desperately gripping onto being Manchester United's rival. Such a huge club, such great history. You know, Liverpool, congratulations to you. Manchester City, obviously local rivals, congratulations to you. We, we kind of care. We do. We kind of care. Leeds United, we definitely care. Anyone else? Mm, not really. I mean, I guess that the, there are sort of remnants of what happened with Chelsea. Um, they, they faded, obviously. Um, but, but generally speaking, <laughs> it, yeah, but it, it lasted for a while. But come on. I tend to think that, that for, for a real rivalry to, to develop, you need kind of two or three pretty key components. I think I think one of those, it's true what Molly says, you need some jeopardy. You know, there has to be uh, something at stake. You know, I, it doesn't necessarily mean that the two teams have to be the best two teams in the league. I mean, Arsenal and Tottenham have had a, had a really good rivalry for, for the last sort of 10, 15 years, and they've basically been scrapping it out for fourth, you know, and okay, that's not the title, but for both teams, that's been pretty fundamental. I think you, you need a bit of spice, whether that's between the players or the managers. You need you need some kind of uh, a bit of fire, a bit of nastiness. You know, you need something to have, to have kind of gone on. And I think you also need some history. You know, I think you need you, this. It, rivalries don't just kind of happen overnight. You know, you need you need a kind of build up of of matches or games or disappointments, things that kind of inform the the tension and 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 the uh, the lack of good feeling, I guess. And I think at the moment, this current Arsenal versus United basically probably only has one of those components you know you, you you maybe have two teams now there's a jeopardy there who are sort of going for, for the title i guess but there's not really a history in, in the sense that the, these two versions of united and arsenal are both very new modern versions you know this isn't we have what we what we remember of course at the turn of the century for people who are kind of born in the 80s and the early 90s yes that was a, an incredible rivalry for sure but for a lot of people you know that is now in, in the long and distant past so I think in a way, and we haven't got any nastiness yet, you know, so there has to be a kind of a build up of some of those things, you know, maybe in two or three years when we've had six or seven games, United and Arsenal have been going at it, you know, again for each other, you know, and we've had a few incidents here and there that have riled them up, you know, then then that, that, that becomes a different thing. But I think this is still this Ten Hag version of United, this Arteta version of Arsenal, both of them are very sort of shiny and brand new and polished. And actually there's nothing really particularly meaty to kind of get into yet. Um but, you know, things things do start, you know, and I think this could be the start of something if United are going to be a real serious proposition again under Ten Hag and they are going to threaten Arsenal. Let's say they beat Arsenal this weekend, you know, and that, and that you know, starts a, a negative spiral for Arsenal. That then becomes something that Arsenal will remember, you know, and that becomes something they have to get revenge for. And these are all the things that the media then build up and then it, it becomes a narrative. And that's where a rivalry happens, you know. At the moment, 
we're all kind of looking back, I think, to sort of 2002, 2003 and, and pizza being thrown and and uh, all that kind of thing. But that doesn't really have that much relevance, I don't think, anymore. And, uh, I can sort of understand where you're coming from, Hugh, on that. I'm not sure I agree. I agree fundamentally that of those three things, history is the most important. I don't think, I think that's more important than whether there's jeopardy or not. I think that will heighten the, any any uh, rivalry or intensity in, in the game. But history is the most important one, and there is history here. And I know it's, it is fairly ancient history now in terms of uh, in football cycles, but I don't think it would take much for that to be sort of rekindled because it's there and it's, it was epic. I mean, we, you, you've gone through some of those things, like the, the battles between Keane and Vieira and Arsene Wenger standing in. And Old Trafford having been sent to the stand with his hands in there like this. There's some epic imagery that will always be associated with this game. So I'm, I, I agree with you fundamentally, but I don't think it will take much for, for that to be rekindled if both teams were to, were to be kind of threatening to be challenging for the, for, for the Premier League title again. Uh, yeah, you, you kind of sway me there, Gregor. I've got to say, it, it, it's going to take a lot for this to be reignited. I think maybe there's a sense with Manchester United, with their history, the kind of arrogance of anyone who's at the top of the league is in their rightful place. Um, might, maybe we'll kick this one, you know, in, into life at the weekend. No Casemiro, huge though uh, for Manchester United. Molly, how do you see the game going? Um, Arsenal have been pretty unflinching in terms of all of their perceived... Um, you know, big games that are going to knock them off course, you know, all the build-up and they've they've sailed through. They've been been brilliant. Do you see Manchester United knocking them off course? I think, as Gregor said earlier on, I think that the loss of Casemiro is, is a big one in terms of this game because I think what we've seen is Casemiro and Christian Eriksen and it was, it, was, it was exactly the same against Palace. They're just integral in everything that United do and I appreciate... Ten Hag saying, well, you know, last time we, we played Arsenal, um, we didn't have Casemiro and and we still won. But it is a very, very different Arsenal now. I think, I, I just think Arsenal have got this confidence about them this season that I think it's really worked in their favour that we and everyone else kind of saw them go to the top of the table and thought, oh, this won't last. Man City are going to plough through everyone as they always do. And I think it sort of worked in their favour. It's almost allowed them to like build into this title race without maybe as much expectation as they would have been, particularly before Christmas. I think since Christmas, people have kind of woken up to it a little bit more. I certainly have, certainly taken it a little bit more seriously. And I think, obviously, United are dangerous. Obviously, you have someone like Marcus Rashford who actually didn't have as much impact on the game last night as he has previously but I think I just I just have to favour Arsenal at the moment you know I think they're they're in such a good moment and I think Tom's exactly right that United feel like the team that Arsenal were last season and what you have with that is inconsistency and at this moment in time Arsenal have just found that consistency when they've needed it the most the kind of battle on the flanks particularly where how Manchester United cope with Saka and Martinelli is going to be you know, key I mean Aroman Bissaka has come from nowhere and kind of <laughs> reminded us that he's a hell of a defender uh, his tackle on Zaha in the kind of final throws uh, against Palace last night was was remarkable and that's as I had said, that's something that only he can do. I think a lot of it's going to—it's not going to be about last ditch challenging. It's going to be about kind of you know judging space and and being compact as a back four, but also dealing with the overloads that Arsenal create in terms of getting 
uh, getting Xhaka into the kind of forward line and and you know almost doubling up wide and Zinchenko uh, rotating into midfield and then another say Luke Shaw who's having you know probably his best period as as a Manchester United player just now who moved back out to to left back last night uh, you know Elise's not not an easy player to mark either the way he often comes inside and then chops back down the line and threatens to you know he can cut in and out and go both ways and Shaw dealt with him pretty well uh, last night and. He's gonna have to. He's gonna be have to, have to be on his A game to deal with Saka. So, uh, I think that that is one one area of uh, the game that's going to be pretty pivotal to to decide whether United can can keep keep Arsenal at bay. Basically, I think if Arsenal win this game, they're in in, the, in an incredible incredible position. I mean, you know, you think when when they came back from the World Cup, we were all worrying about what Jesus, what that effect might have on the team. And you looked at those fixtures, and they 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 had Brighton away, which you know we saw how they hammered Liverpool last weekend. That's a really tough fixture at the moment. They had Newcastle, Spurs away, and then United, which they've got this weekend. If they could come through those fixtures with, you know, essentially two or three wins and, and a draw, I mean, you know, you look at the run they've got now. In the next kind of month: Everton, Brentford, Villa, Leicester, Bournemouth, Fulham, Palace, Leeds. That pretty much takes them to April. And okay, City is is dotted in there as well in the middle of February. But you know, if they come through this period of what we what we all thought were, were some really tough fixtures without their arguably most important player, and they're still got a very healthy lead at the top of the table, in my opinion, Arsenal are, are really well set up to to go all the way. We will react to events uh, in the Premier League this weekend as Manchester United uh, take on Arsenal. It's a big one. We're actually going to have though an update on Manchester United's ownership next on the game. We'll also be talking about the pressure on David Moyes. We'll discuss maternity in football, racism in football uh, and a big development in the use of VAR as well. So stay with us. Still got plenty still to come uh, on the game. So a big story to keep your eyes on this weekend, of course, is the future of David Moyes. The Times reporting that David Moyes is set to be sacked if West Ham United lose their big relegation six-pointer against Everton in the Premier League this weekend. That story brought to you by Chief Sports Correspondent Matt Lawton, who, busy as he is, has taken the time to join us on his travels. Hi, Matt. Hi, Hugh. How are you doing? Very well. Tell us the inside scoop on West Ham United at the moment. What is the sentiment right now in terms of how the club is doing and how does that pertain to the manager, David Moyes? Look, I think the sentiment is that they 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 like David Moyes very much, but the fact of the matter is uh, they are in dire trouble. They've taken one point from seven matches. And as much as they recognise, this is the West Ham board, that, uh, that he did a very, very good job when he came back in 2019. He stabilised their position in the Premier League. He, Got into European semi-final last season. Um, they are they are in trouble. They've spent over a hundred million pounds in the summer, and they are currently, you know, only only above two other clubs in the Premier League on goal difference. They're third from bottom. The decision was taken, as I understand it, that that he was given three games to turn it around away away to Leeds and and, and away to Wolves, um, and at home to uh, Everton. And he's taken only one point from those two matches, the, the, the draw at Leeds. So it really is, it was described to me yesterday as critical that he doesn't lose this game. Everton, of course, are, are one place behind them uh, on the same amount of points. And it's just one goal in it in terms of goal difference. So no, it, as I say, I, I think there is a, a real feeling 
uh, at West Ham that they desperately want him to win, that they desperately want Moyes to continue. They know he's a good manager. His track record, you know, despite those those bumps in the road that he had at, at Manchester United and then in Spain and, and, and at Sunderland, they know he's a good manager. And, and he's proved that, I think, again. He got his mojo back uh, at West Ham, but things have taken a turn for the worse. And he, he's... He's now in a position where if, if he loses to a, to a fellow relegation battler, he, he's probably out. Is there a sense, and I think West Ham United fans will want to know, if there is a plan after this, it's all good sacking the manager, it is a poor run of form. It doesn't necessarily guarantee that things will get better, but West Ham, I think for many, is an attractive club at the moment, given, I guess, the London Stadium, the improvements that they've made over the last couple of seasons with journeys into Europe. Do you sense that if David Moyes were to lose at the weekend and, and that fate were to befall him, that there would be a successor coming in very quickly? And what level of manager might that be? That's hard to say because look, uh, the people I speak to, they're, they're, they're not at the stage yet where they're prepared to detail what plan B is. Um, I'm sure there is a plan B because football clubs always have a plan B. But uh, I think, as I say, I think they really are hopeful that he can turn things around. Um, you know, Martin Samuel wrote a column in the Times this week that made the point that, that what what uh, if they have to sack David Moyes, what what uh, West Ham actually needs is David Moyes, you know. So it, it's it's kinda of true because when you look around the room, the options and I've seen various papers speculating on the options, the options aren't that attractive within their own walls and they'll look at someone like Mark Noble, even though that would be a massive gamble, I would say, but obviously such an established figure at the club, maybe that maybe that will be the option they take. But the fact is, particularly when the ownership of the club is is in this state of flux with the with you know with the checks buying a big chunk of it. David Gold has just passed away, one of the co-owners. I think what's absolutely essential, perhaps more so than ever, is that they they retain their Premier League status, and that's why they will if they lose this weekend, pull the trigger because they have to stay in the Premier League. You know, if the value of the club plummets, that would be a disaster for, 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 the, for, the, for the current owners. And, you know, it, it would throw the whole, the whole possible eventual takeover into jeopardy. So, yeah, it really is a, a critical point for the club. There is another story that you've been working on that I think we do need to update the fans of, of Manchester United on. This is stuff off the pitch, really. Um, I'm sure United fans will know that the co-owners, Avram and Joel Glazer, announced they were seeking new investment for the club back in November. There are a couple of great articles you can read on the Times app right now where we discuss whether Jim Ratcliffe, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, has the money, firstly, to buy Manchester United after, I guess, he became the first potential buyer to go public over their desire to become involved with the ownership of the club. And you have written, Matt about the chief threats to Sir Jim Ratcliffe in terms of uh, who might be buying Manchester United. Firstly, there is a huge price tag for this club, so it's interesting, I think, for, for those listening to understand whether Jim, Sir Jim Ratcliffe can actually afford what he's doing, because that was my initial reaction. Me and my partner were watching the news and I just said, he's not rich enough to buy Manchester United. Nice story, nice headline. Um, but there are some others who I'm sure are, and are they realistic buyers? Are they determined to become involved with Manchester United? What's a lowdown? Yeah, look, I think there are people out there that, that can afford it. And I think Jim Ratcliffe can afford Manchester United at the right price. You know, he's not a charlatan, this guy. He, he's he's a serious player. And, and while he did come very late to the party uh, with the Chelsea 
uh, sale last year, he did make an offer of two and a half billion with a further commitment to 1.75 billion to redevelop Stamford Bridge and, and this commitment that needed to be made uh, on the playing squad. You know, he, he, he did say that he had the money and there's no doubt he did. He's one of Britain's richest men. His, his, his company, Ineos, you know, turns over uh, billions and billions. Uh, the money is available. Now, I think if the, the, the price that was set back in November was between six and eight billion, and that is starting to be a very big number for someone like Jim Radcliffe. So I think Radcliffe's, you know, the fact that he's, and it was, you know, Matt Dickinson's story, my colleague, you know, brilliant story this week, the fact that he's again come quite late to the, to the table because a lot of the uh, potential bidders have already been in touch with, with United's bankers. They've already started their due diligence. And the fact that Radcliffe has come late, what that says to me is that he... He doesn't want to push the price up. He 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 said publicly before that you know uh, that he thinks a lot of these clubs are, are overvalued. Um, so he will be, I think, gambling on the possibility that when it comes to the crunch, no one re- meets the valuation that, that United wants, and then he might be in the game. Then he might be in a position where he's actually quite attractive where there's a push from the fans and, and they like the fact that this is a local boy, guy brought a guy who grew up in Lancashire who supports Manchester United. And actually he's where he where he considers himself attractive as a buyer is the fact that unlike some of these 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 investment groups that are buying football clubs, like the Bowley Clear Lake group, he's not going to be under pressure to produce profits for his investors. He is a single he would be a single owner, a single entity who doesn't need a quick return on his investment. So in many ways, that could be very attractive in the same way that Roman Abramovich owned Chelsea. You know, he's just a, a, you know, an individual with loads of money who doesn't, who's in for the long haul. So that's what he, he hopes that that will be what really puts him in, you know, right, right up there in, in the bidding battle. Now, what is interesting, what I wrote about this morning and this was based on speaking to people, you know, basically in Wall Street uh, over in New York, is that there is still a great desire in the states to invest in sports franchises. We've seen the Denver Broncos go for 4.75 billion last year, and right now the the Washington Commanders are trying to are trying to secure a price of around seven billion. And while no one's met that valuation, there was a December uh, deadline set. No one quite met the seven billion valuation. There is a lot of talk that there are bids coming in for them of north of six billion. And the way it was explained to me, I spoke to a hedge fund manager in, in New York this week, and, and basically what he said was, sport is one of the few industries that that appears to be immune to this this global economic crisis. People still believe, and it's and it's and it's based on the fact that the broadcasting contracts are still there, the money's still rolling in. Sport, you know, the Premier League, Champions League. NFL, the money is still pouring in. The broadcast money is still pouring in, and, and and while you know I haven't done a straw poll of people around the country, people are you know people are struggling at the moment to pay perhaps pay their energy bills. But you, we haven't heard stories of everyone cancelling their Sky subscriptions, for instance. So sport is seen as a very safe industry to invest in, and that's why there is confidence at United that they can that they can get a big price for this. I remember speaking to Joe Ravitch back in November. Joe Ravitch is the guy who is the, the Rain Group co-founder who is basically leading this sale. He's the same New York banker who sold who sold uh, Chelsea for Abramovich. And 
the key to this and what they're, what they're talking about, the reason they think that they can get such a big price is because Manchester United have, they claim, more than a billion supporters around the world. And where they think there's still growth in Manchester United is, is, is in monetizing that fan base digitally. And they think, they think to really make United work and to really grow that business beyond what the Glazers have managed is to actually have that, that expertise, that kind of Amazon, uh, Yahoo, Google expertise. Now, it's interesting. I, again, I touched on this. There was, a, there was an article in the Washington Post this week, which was about uh, Jeff Bezos' interest in, was- in the Washington commanders. Now, according to the Washington Post, and, and the reason to take them seriously as a newspaper is because Bezos owns the Washington Post. They're saying that uh, he didn't make a bid for the command. And I remember people telling me before Christmas when the United when United went officially for sale that, you, that we need to be looking in that kind of direction, those kind of companies who might be interested in buying a club like Manchester United because of this massive fan base. And I just wonder, and then this is not necessarily a prediction, but I just wonder if someone like Bezos would be more interested in Manchester United than he would be in a major NFL franchise. It's interesting, Matt, and it's a story that will rumble on, I'm sure, and you'll keep us updated all the way alongside Matt Dickinson. If you want to read more on West Ham United and Manchester United, uh, make sure you download the Times app right now. Pick up a newspaper as well. The Times keeping you right up to date with those developing stories. Now, you may have seen the story of the Iceland captain, Sarah Björk Gunnarsdottir, winning a claim against her former side, Leon, for failing to pay her full salary during pregnancy. Um, It's been called a wake-up call for clubs. I've got to say, credit to the Players' Tribune and the story that Sarah wrote herself of her experience. The story, roughly, goes that in May of 2022, a FIFA tribunal ordered French side Leon to pay the unpaid salaries of more than £72,000, the Players' Union FIFPro calling it a landmark case. Gunnar Dottir saying that this is not just business after that ruling was made public this week. She said, this is about my rights as a worker, as a woman and as a human being. But I think um, it has resonated without football. The, the experiences, I think, of many mothers um, di- diving into the case. I think Leon felt that they could use French law rather than the laws that have been agreed and signed to um, by, by clubs from FIFA in which you must honour a contract, essentially. And it's kind of a ridiculous situation that a club of their magnitude, well, eight Champions League titles, would go against that, really, Molly. And that, I think, was one of the most striking elements of this story. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's the most shocking part of this, but it's also the most damning part of it for women's football more widely that if a club like Leon think they can do that and get away with that, then what are the kind of problems that other women, other mothers are facing across the Women's Super League, across the world that, you know, don't have these provisions because you're talking about Leon as, you know, legitimately the best team in Europe, arguably the world. And I think it was it's very brave of, of, of Sarah to come forward about this because I think it would have been very easy to to kind of look at Leon and their sort of power, you know, in this situation and just just feel as though there's there's nothing you can do about it. So I think, you know, huge credit has to go to her. I think it's certainly been 
a couple of weeks that have really highlighted this because we saw Emma McCandy, the Reading captain, discuss the fact that, well, essentially the issues that she, she had both while she was pregnant and after she actually gave birth at Reading. The fact that, you know, her, her child wasn't allowed at the club. She was breastfeeding in a cupboard. It's, a, it's essentially shining a light on something that is not good enough. And I think... I've said it a lot about women's football, but we've been very lucky, blessed, completely deserving of all of the success that there's been in the last 12 months. At the very, very top of the game, you know, the Lionesses have won things, great. But there's a lot of foundation level things that aren't in place in the women's game, whether it's scouting, whether it's making sure that, you know, people from less well-off backgrounds can actually get into women's football, whether it's, you know, payment and conditions for the players. There's there's a lot of things that aren't as good as they should be yet. And I think this sort of case it, it is a landmark case because now if a player, say, in the Women's Super League or in the French division or anywhere kind of in one of those leading leagues around the world, this happens to them, they can say, well, look, this is not okay we can speak out and people will listen to us. And I know we, we're, we're going to speak about the, the John Yems case later on, but I think that's kind of the point of these things, right? That we need to give the players power and we know they're having to take risks to bring these really important issues to light and they have to be listened to and they have to feel that at the end of this process, which is clearly long and convoluted and costly, and worrying for their careers, they have to be believed and they have to be understood. And I think actually the fact that Sarah has actually got some compensation at the end of this, you know, it's not going to change the the issues that she felt, the issues that she went through, but it does at least feel like an admission of guilt that actually, yeah, Leon has probably the best team in the world, should have done a lot more and should have done better. There are so many aspects that we can go into just based on, on what you've said there, Molly. Um, it, you know, it was interesting to hear about Reading, but I'm sure there are many clubs like this just in terms of the facilities for mothers and the also the treatment, you know, the understanding that, you know, you have a squad full of female players, uh, some of whom are mothers, you know, ultimately and will need um, support in that regard in terms of, you know, the day-to-day of bringing up a child, um, particularly if they've just given birth, key period of time, obviously. But also, I, I just want to play devil's advocate, you know, and act as almost a lawyer for a football club. You know, I, I wonder what's on the horizon in terms of clauses in the future. You know, this may well be a landmark case, but maybe for negative reasons in the future. You know, are players going to be told, well, you've signed a three-year deal, but you've also got to agree that you're not going to you know, take time off to have a child during that period of time. Uh, other countries, and obviously it's probably not the case legally here, but, you know, Leon tried to use a, a, a route through the French courts. You wonder if clubs will try and use their domestic laws to maybe try and infringe upon the rights of female players. Because you know that, and, and I know, both know that there will be clubs that, that are surprised by the ruling and say, well, hold on a minute, should I pay for a player who is, and many clubs will see it, chosen to have a child during their contract? Should it be a bit like maternity laws, you know, for, for all of us, you know, should it be a sliding scale of where you get your full salary for a period? And then after that, if you take more time away from the your, your job, then you are going to be paid less. Obviously, in football, we are used to people being paid fully for just about 
everything in their contract. You know, it's very, very rare that we see in football people lose money from their contracts. They can have an ACL, they could be out for a year, you know, double leg break, you know, injuries, of course, not a player's fault. They don't lose any money in that regard. But then I know that football clubs will argue, well, they haven't chosen that. And the argument will be, and again, I'm just playing devil's advocate, why would you be choosing during the the course of your career, your sporting career, to have a child? And I actually think that there needs to be more knowledge and awareness around this. I mean, it's obvious that people are not going to delay their lives to play football. You know, it is a job. It is a great job. And I'm sure they'll say it's one of the greatest jobs in the world. But um, certain things come first. And that is exactly what Sarah outlined in her article, which I read in full yesterday and thought was was incredible. Do you do you see any negatives coming from this, Molly? I think the the point you've made is an interesting one because uh, like there's so many different scenarios. Like we're kind of assuming that every woman that gets pregnant has planned to be pregnant, which obviously isn't the case. So then you're talking about whether that would then impact somebody's career would impact their decision as to whether or not to, to have a baby. It's very complicated. I think the the positives of this case and of previous kind of forward movements on this is that the Women's Super League does have a new, well, relatively new. It came into um, play the first time in the 2022-23 season at the start of the season. Um, so a player going on maternity leave will be paid 100% of her weekly wage as well as any other remuneration and benefits for the first 14 weeks. Then it reverts to the statutory rate. So kind of what you're talking about um, in a sense that there is that period where everyone will will, will kind of get the, the maximum and then it does tail off. I think my feeling is that we need to do more and research more into how to get female players back playing because quite clearly now female footballers are worth a lot more to clubs than they were, you know, two, three, five years ago. Someone like Melanie Loopholes at Chelsea, one of the best midfielders in the world, decided to have a baby, has just come back to training, having had, what, I think a year out. And Emma Hayes spoke really well about the fact that they've invested in uh, pelvic floor specialists to help her to come back. Now, let's be honest, a club like Chelsea can afford to do that. Not all clubs can afford to have a, a a pelvic specialist come in for one player that's returning back from being pregnant. So I think it's something that hopefully as as the women's game grows more income, that sort of base level that the FA require will continue to rise, which then means that more players are protected. Because at the moment, let's be honest, it is a bit of potluck. It's if you get pregnant at a top club or if you get pregnant at even a sort of run-of-the-mill middle team in the Women's Super League, your experience is sadly probably going to be very different. One thing is that this is not something that's unique to, to football as a sector. I mean, my, my MP, Stella Creasy, and she's fought tooth and nail for maternity cover as a, as a member of parliament. <laughs> she brought her baby into the Houses of Parliament once to kind of make a point about it. And, and as someone who's just, who became a dad just under two years ago, um, I, I know I can speak from experience, there's, my partner's uh, maternity care was not, not adequate. But if, if you're an athlete, this is a huge thing. It's a, a monumental thing to, to have a baby. When's it, you know, when's are going to be a good, a good time as an athlete to have, to, to have a baby? You know, as you say, I remember we were 
covering the, the women's Euros in the summer, Molly, and doing prep and stuff and seeing that people were going to miss the Euros because they were pregnant. It's like, it, it's, it's huge. So that it absolutely has to be enshrined that there is adequate support for all professional women's footballers. Absolutely, that has to be enshrined. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There are other stories off the pitch that we do need to address. And you mentioned John Yems there a few minutes ago. Well, the Football Association uh, has said that it fundamentally disagrees with the view of an independent panel that comments made by the ex-Crawley town boss John Yems were, and this is the quote that they used in their report, not a case of conscious racism. I was listening to phone-ins on the radio throughout the day yesterday and stuff like that. I thought it was really interesting to to hear the views of the country, not necessarily the views of football fans on this as well. John Yems has been banned from football until June of 2024. He was found guilty of racist abuse towards his players. Uh, The report, uh, as I say, by the disciplinary commission accepted that Mr. Yems is not a conscious racist. The FA, though, disagrees and says it's now considering its legal options. Just to run you through some of the evidence that the tribunal heard, it included that Yems used a racial slur uh, to describe some of the club's black players. He deliberately mispronounced a name. I think that name is that of Arnold Schwarzenegger to make it sound like a racially offensive term. Yems used a racial stereotype to two black players who were playing darts. He repeated a racial slur. He made gestures to them as if he was using a blowpipe. Evidence uh, that was represented was that a player once feigned illness to avoid Yems, in inverted uh, commas, banter about eating curry. A Muslim player was the subject of jokes about being a terrorist. He was asked if he slept with a gun and if he carried a bomb in his bag. Uh, Yems used a racial stereotype to a black player of African origins by asking if he liked jerk chicken, which is actually a dish associated with the Caribbean. And another player returning from international duty was told he shouldn't train with the squad. Uh, Yems commented on his colour, then put his hand over his mouth, saying he shouldn't say that. I mean, the list is pretty bad and actually I think for a lot of people me as a black football fan hugely concerned by how short this ban was given the amount of evidence the number of players and incidents um, I, I don't really care about the conclusion that John Yems is not a conscious racist whatever that means I mean it doesn't really matter for me the evidence 
that was represented, the people that have been affected by this, the words that were used and the quite overt nature of them for this ban only to run until the summer of 2024 is pretty disgraceful in my personal opinion. Um, and, and bear in mind, I think the FA has got a lot of criticism. Bear in mind that they disagreed with this and they disagreed with the panel's conclusions. And as I said, they're, they're considering their legal option. It was an unnecessary, and it is an unnecessary episode for football, Tom. Yeah, I think as you said, Hugh, what's so shocking here is the is the, the repetition. You know, it's, it's the the number of incidents here that he was guilty of. I, I, I could I could sympathise very slightly more if with a not consciously racist sort of terminology, although it's, it's slightly uncomfortable, I have to say, but if it was a sort of one-off, you know, I, I think people people are capable sometimes of um, using clumsy terminology or saying something uh, just, you know, once that maybe they re- immediately regret. You know, everyone can can say something that they, they understand is is incorrect. But I think here <laughs> that quite clearly is not the case. When you see how many times, you know, that this happened, that to me amounts to someone who who is being consciously racist because it's not a mistake it's not a one-off it's not a it's not a slip of the tongue or or, or clumsiness it's it's complete ignorance and and that is ultimately what, what racism is and it does set a very dangerous precedent because if you start drawing imaginary lines between whether someone is intentionally or unintentionally or consciously or unconsciously racist that offers a, a very convenient and easy excuse for for offenders in the future basically i i think how how can you how can you make that decision how can you decide that you know it's a very difficult thing to to know and 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 what i think makes me uncomfortable here as well as it, it is that the judgment is completely based around giving the benefit of the doubt to the offender rather than taking into account the consequences that must have been inflicted upon upon the victims you know i mean there's no there's nothing here that kind of describes how you know conscious or unconscious you know the victims you know the consequence is basically the same you know to them there is no dividing line between whether it's conscious or unconscious what he said is what he said you know and, and you know to, to broaden out i'm not a lawyer but it, you know in in other instances of law you know you are liable for for mistakes that you make irrespective of motive irrespective of whether you intentionally or unintentionally did it and I think the FA is is completely right in this instance to to make clear that it, it very much disagreed with with the judgment and also the the reasons for it. Gregor, football football changing rooms um, terminology that's used. Uh, look, maybe I shouldn't blame all of football for John Yem's comments, but uh, he's been in football for a very long time, very very long time, and. Um, there's no way that I can describe this number of incidents as being isolated. There are others that many, you know, we won't name any names that would say, um, you know, bad behavior in football generally is accepted and tolerated at times by fans. You know, if a player is scoring enough goals, it looks like they can, they can do no wrong to football fans at times, for example. Uh, they don't want to hear anything negative about the, the things that players may have done off the field. Coaches, you know, within the game, if they're winning games, you know, clubs are unlikely to to get rid of them. And does that mean, does that general, maybe not just in football, because there are other sports that are exactly the same, you know, generally, you know, do we sacrifice too much in terms of wanting results by overlooking shameful behaviour from time to time? I understand the question, you, but I, I, I don't think 
it bears any relation to this because I because what what was being outlined here is is pretty shocking language and as Tom pointed out on a kind of ongoing consistent basis you know it, I'll be honest in the early years of my career I heard racist language almost on a daily basis and I was also struck by the kind of testimony if that's the right word by the club chaplain who said he felt I think he was saying he felt a little bit guilty that he hadn't made it clear to Yems that that language is unacceptable. And that's something that, you know, <laughs> I think fundamentally we're seeing, he, he's claimed he's old school. I interviewed John Yems before the, the Crawley played Leeds, when they, they beat Leeds in the FA Cup a year or two ago. The whole interview was about reminiscence of football in the past and what had been lost. And I think he is a kind of, he is someone who thinks that, you know, uh, bemoaning the, the rise of data and computer geeks and stuff. That's the kind of stuff he was coming out with. It, it's completely irrelevant. He's he's of a, an era that is that is dying, if not died out. And it, it, he, he has no place in football if he uses language like that. And the, 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 Well, they're, they're happy to let him back into football next summer by the look right. of it. So but w- do, you think who would be, employ him? do you think he will be back in football? Who would employ him? No. Well, this is the thing, and this is this is the interesting point, and this is what I mean, and that's why I asked you the question, because you say now who would employ him. If John Yems won the league every year with the teams that he managed, someone would, wouldn't they? I don't know. I, th- I think, well, look, it's, it's not finished. That's that's the first thing to say. Obviously, as you say, the FA have, have challenged this, and they will, tr- they will push for a, uh, a tougher sanction, a longer ban. But you might, you know, you might be right, but I think that this is so extreme that it's of a sort of different... A different level that the that clubs supporters would surely push back against this. Another thing to say is it's it's very brave by the by the players in question. You know he's he's even tried to turn it into these are people who had a grievance because they were in the bomb squad. You know as if as if that matters. Like the the bomb squad are players who are not not regular starters and we might have a grievance because they're not he's not they're not getting picked in the team. That's what he tried to make. That's what he tried to assert. As if that matters in the slightest, it's like open and shut. There's five or six players who have come forward, given compelling evidence, and the club chaplain along with them. So you know, you you do make a good point. Football is football is kind of quick to to think about winning and success first and foremost. But I feel that this was even as as I say, as someone who was in football dressing twenty years ago, when there was some language that I look back at now and think was pretty shocking and I feel some I kind of as I say feel some sympathy with uh, sympathy is not the right word I feel similar to the club chaplain and I, I look back and think why well, you know I didn't say anything I've had conversations with friends now about that it's a positive that this that we're at this place now that footballers can feel that they can come forward and be supported by the PFA and call out the manager which is very brave a very brave thing to do and what they need to be is now supported. <laughs> they need, we need to see a tough, tougher sanction than one that was put down and any question of it being conscious or not completely taken out of the equation. If you're saying this, whether it's con- conscious racism or not, that, what's the get out that, he was, that he's ignorant? What's, uh, what relevance does that have? I think, I mean, generally speaking, I think it just conf- conflated two, um, two ideas, really. One of unconscious bias which I think we can all have. And it's uh, an interesting thing. If you don't know what unconscious bias is, certainly look it up. But, um, you know, in many ways, stereotyping um, is a 
is another word for it. And I think we can all do that from time to time in many different ways. But do we act out what would be seen as um, hatred, in my in my opinion, on you know, in that way? It's very rare, actually, that people do that. And if they do and they do it in such an overt way, it's, you know, it's incredibly rare. You know, like I say, there are so many people out there who've analysed, you know, unconscious biases, but you can't really mix it with racism. There isn't really such a thing, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. So, yeah, so, I, I, you know, it doesn't surprise me that that will be challenged by the FA. But again, it's a sad episode. As we've been speaking, I've heard that, it, that John Yems has been on the radio. So we'll find out what he had to say a little bit later on. Maybe uh, there is some mitigation. I find it massively unlikely. But there you go. I'm sure he denies doing anything wrong at all. Molly? I believe he is, instead of apologising, has actually suggested that perhaps he is due some apologies. So perhaps that sums up sums up him and the case in general. Could be a new manager for the start of the 2024-25 season, fans. So look forward to that. Uh, listen, we're going to move on from that sad, again, sad episode. Um, let's try and, and add some positivity before we end the podcast this week. Um, and I think for some football fans, this will be a positive. It's reported in the Times that referees at next week's Club World Cup, including our own official Anthony Taylor, will for the first time explain the reasons for VAR decisions to the crowd inside the stadium and also, of course, to the TV audience. Now, during the trial at the tournament in Morocco, referees are going to relay their decisions via a microphone connected to the public address system, though the conversation with the video official will actually remain private. The experiment, which could be extended to the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand this summer, if deemed successful, was given the go-ahead at a meeting of IFAB, the International uh, Football Association Board, that's the game's lawmaking body, in London, of course. Yep, we always start these things. Tom, what's your reaction? Will it work? Will fans like it? What do you what do you, what do you expect to see at the Club World Cup in this regard? I mean, fans definitely won't like it. I mean, <laughs> anything to do with VAR, I think, uh, will cause will cause uh, more sort of unrest. I'm sure, but I, I have to say, overall, I think it's a, it's a positive step. I think one of the major uh, hurdles at the moment with VAR is is the lack of uh, communication inside the stadium, a lack of transparency over how decisions are made. Um, and I think the fans being able to understand um, what is going on in a football match, if they paid their money to watch it inside a stadium, is a pretty fundamental right to a match-going supporter. Um, so I think it's absolutely a step in the right direction. I'll be interested to see how the kind of uh, more intricate details actually work out. Like how how do they actually plan to explain in how much detail, how long is it going to take, um, all this kind of thing. That will be interesting. I agree with the overall principle, um, but it'll be interesting to see what, how the details work out. I mean, obviously, for example, in in rugby union, you have to kind of pay for a for a headset. I believe you know if you go to Twickenham and you pay you sort of eight eight quid to kind of understand what the referee is saying and and why decisions are made. I presume that's not going to be the case yet in football, but. I do think that with all these things, it's always about the details. In a way, that's the, been the whole thing with VAR, that the fundamental principle is kind of correct. It's to make decisions better. But as we've seen, the devil is always in the details. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I was also interested to see that IFAB were keen to basically to, to roll out the extra time that was seen at the World Cup uh, across the major leagues as well. Uh, a briefing with with Howard Webb a few weeks ago. And, and he was, I would say, fairly sceptical about how the extra time um, occurred during during the World Cup. He, he sort of felt that probably it was a little bit excessive, I think. And I, I happen to kind of agree with that. I think ultimately 
you have to decide what the price is you want to pay for for making sure every single you know uh, moment in a match is is given back an extra time i think by the time you get into 110 minute football matches you have to kind of say how long do we sort of want to be here and and also there is a a case for for saying the flow of games is interrupted already you know you may get the seconds back but you don't necessarily get the momentum you don't get the energy back that that was deprived of a team from a, from a player wasting time so i'm not entirely convinced um by that but let's see. I, I, I do think the idea of communicating uh, more broadly, more clearly with supporters, particularly inside stadiums, is a is a step forward. But as I say, let's see. Let's see how it actually plays out in the detail. I have to say, having having read um, Martin Ziegler's article on this, there was one big old red flag that jumped out to me because it talks about this pilot, this experiment, which is fantastic. I think personally give it a go. If it doesn't work, we don't have to do it. Fantastic. You know, what's the harm in trying? Because there's enough abuse, uh, frustration around VAR. I mean, we talk about it a lot on here, let's be honest. So, you know, give it a go. If it works, great. If it doesn't, then we never need to do it again. My worry was that it said this experiment, and I quote, could continue into the Women's World Cup. And we had this in 2019. And it wasn't great. And for me now, the Women's World Cup, and I know I'm biased as somebody that covers women's football, but why are we using a major tournament to experiment this thing? Like, the women's game isn't a guinea pig. So I'm all for having a pilot. I'm all for seeing how it goes, but then make a decision. And if it's going to come in, then bring it in, but bring it in for everything. Don't just bring it in for the Women's World Cup and then think, oh, it didn't go so well that. Should we, should we not do that in the Premier League? Well, no, that's not fair, is it? So that would be my big worry that they use a major international tournament, which promises to be a fantastic spectacle of women's football, the best Women's World Cup we've ever had with the highest quality players that could be ruined by an experiment about VAR. I just don't want to see that. Yeah, you're right on that. It could be kind of crazy. I mean, the World Cup as well, of all competitions, to be trialling it out in such a major way. I, I doubt, you know, the Club World Cup, with all respect, even if it goes badly, most people won't be watching that. But yeah, it would be kind of insane. I, I kind of like it. Like, I'm an NFL fan, and I kind of like the, the, the officials go and have a little conversation, and they come back, and there isn't a, a way of announcing. They just press a little button on their microphones, on their belts, and to be honest, they just say, you know, number 25 did this, and this is why it's a penalty to this team. That's it. They don't really give any explanation as such, but I still kind of like that because then the um, all of the, the broadcasters then go back and say, okay, well, this is the specific incident that they're talking about, obviously. You kind of see a replay and a little dissection of it, and you do get a little bit more understanding as opposed to sitting there and being like, what's gone on here? Particularly if you're in the stadium, and then it's definitely, you're definitely like, I don't know, have they, have they given a pen? Is that a goal? You know, you kind of sometimes see the ref point. You think, goal kick, penalty, what's he doing? Is it a free kick? Like, what, what's going on? I think that will help in that regard. And I think maybe the players will be a little bit clearer on terms of the infringement and stuff like that. But um, we, we shall see. We shall see. I agree with you, Molly, though. I don't want to see it 
being trialled at a World Cup of any description, to be perfectly honest, even if it's the under-17s, you know, let these players enjoy what's the pinnacle of their age groups, or some of them the pinnacle of their career, you know, so so that's it. Anyway, Tom Allnut, Molly Hudson, Gregor Robertson, thank you so much for being with me for the podcast. Thank you all for listening. Another big Monday on the way. Uh, we'll see you then. Enjoy your weekend. In the meantime, download the Times app. Uh, you can also subscribe to the game, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. And yeah, hit that notification button and you won't miss an episode. We'll see you soon. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.